Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Also, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that this episode contains references to and the names of deceased persons. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learned on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, a former New South Wales detective who's worked across some of Australia's highest profile cold cases. Murder of a woman, that's rocked a town and still does 20 years later. Just the fact that it remains unsolved, you know, when it doesn't have to be. These are intense investigations and ones which took a toll on families and communities and, as you'll hear, took a toll on him as a detective and a person. PTSD never goes away, so I still get triggered, I still get upset. I can still find myself crying sometimes at seeing something or remembering something. Greg had an 18-year career. Now he's a crime author, publishing under the name Greg James. His book, Border Town, is a beauty. We'll go back a little further to start the conversation. It's a Sunday, and Greg receives a call. The body of a woman's been found about 10 kilometres south of the Queensland border. It was 20 years last month that was the anniversary of her murder. She went missing from a hotel, a licensed premise in Gundawindi. Gundawindi, for those who don't know, is a relatively small town on the border of Queensland and New South Wales, but it's in Queensland, separated into, by New South Wales by a river, McIntyre River. So she went missing from that hotel. She went home with a fellow that night um, and was never seen since. Now, the Queensland police obviously kicked off a missing persons investigation at that stage, and they did lots of searches along the river, all sorts of places, and she wasn't found, and she was found by... Um, I think some members of her family who'd been off searching. She was supposed to go to a 20 or an 18th or 21st in Bogabilla that Saturday and never turned up, so they were worried. Um, until 12 days later where she turned up um, naked and beaten, you know, dragged up under a culvert about oh, 10k, I suppose, from the border. Basically, there's nothing there. There's a road, a lot of um, nothing. We knew that she um, had not been at that location for very long. In terms of her body, it was really cold July out, out there as well. You know, we waited crime scene, and again, crime scene's not something that turns up, you know, like in Sydney, an hour later. Sometimes it's overnight, so I think that scene was guarded. What we do then is then just start the process of investigation that involves interviewing and re-interviewing anybody who might have any information. What was 
I guess difficult about this particular job is that for 12 days the Queensland Police investigated it as a missing person. New South Wales had nothing to do with it. Yes, she was a New South Wales resident, but she'd gone missing in Queensland. So for 12 days they had done their own investigation and we had zero involvement with anything to do with it. They were obviously looking at a particular person, that is the person she was last seen with, which is normal. It wasn't until you know 12 days later, the 29th of July, that she was found in New South Wales that we got involved. So we're 12 days behind already. We formed a what's called a strike force. And what we had to do then is backtrack every sort of everything that the Queenslanders had done, everyone they'd spoken to, where they'd searched, which made it difficult as well. And the other side of it is we look at, obviously, forensically, the body itself. Now, the other frustrating thing about this particular matter is the pathologist wouldn't give us a cause of death. Now, just explain that, because the, the post-mortem, which obviously happens in a case like this, they, they found a range of quite somewhat horrific injuries, and a lot of them across the body of, of the deceased. But the forensic pathologist, even allowing for that, couldn't or wouldn't identify a specific cause of death. Is, that's, is that correct? Yeah, I say wouldn't. I mean, right. um, you know, but I'm not a forensic pathologist either, mm. but mm. You, know, you only have to look at the pictures to know she'd been beaten around the head. She had a massive, um, great bruise on a, one of her cheeks and, and lots of other bruising as well. Now, obviously she had been, what he did say is that she had been dead for 12 days. So we know that she had died on or around that night she went missing, so 12 days before. So whilst it was cold outside... I guess you could say her body was in reasonably good condition, if you want to say it like that, but was infected with a lot of insects and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's a process we've got to go to. Obviously, it's really important for us to know how someone died to be able to sort of, you know, move forward. But again, you only have to look at her photos to know that she'd been, I say, bashed. But again, the pathologist would say that that, you know, the level of that assault wouldn't have caused her death. So there's whole things at play. You've got an assault. You've got things like hypothermia. I think medically, from memory, the pathologist said she was in relatively good health. It wasn't anything there, like she had a heart attack or anything like that. This this must add to the frustration, and and also it's a. And I don't mean to be, um, uh, but yeah, there's a point where that box needs to be ticked, doesn't it? That cause of death is this. It's linked to our pathology report, and that can be presented to a jury. But you don't have that putting a brief together to take into court where you're missing a piece of that of that puzzle makes it difficult, doesn't it? Well, it would be if you can't tell a jury or a judge how someone died. It makes it all a bit harder. It doesn't mean it can't be done, of course. But, yeah, obviously the cause of death leads you down a certain path of investigation to follow up. And that kicked off uh, an investigation that's still going today. Well, I don't know if it's going, but... It remains unsolved. There's been a coroner's inquest, which I was heavily involved with, and I named the person who I, who I thought was responsible for her murder. The thing is, with that, that job, there's, there's probably half a dozen other suspects that could have done it as well, and that sort of threw things into the mix, which made things very difficult. I said this to the coroner, that um, it's, it's been in an open court, that what he said to us and he's maintained all along is that he went home with her from the pub through the service to nearby service station, um, slept with her, had sex with her, and then um, she had breakfast in the morning and he waved her off. We know they went through the service station after the hotel because there's, you know, I'll say, very grainy footage of it, but we know that. 
he was interviewed a number of times. I I was I interviewed him last. I only read through the transcript of the interview the other day actually, and um, he was asked all the all the questions and still maintained that you know they'd had sex and she'd left the next day. When we examined his house, we found no evidence of her being there, and I'm talking about DNA. He said she had Vegemite on toast. She had some smokes, a cup of coffee, nothing, nothing. And yet there was plenty of his DNA found on uh, on, on the yes, deceased. On, mm. on her, and none of hers at his house. So that's circumstantial. Is it strong? I don't know. And, you know, there's a lot of other evidence to suggest he was, you know, when you do an investigation like this, there's obviously hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence and they've all got to be followed up and run out. Um, there's sightings of her in town the next day, there's sightings of her the next week, the next month. As, as is often the case in situations like this, um, Greg, and you would know better than anybody, other stories start coming forward, don't they? A couple of guys, that uh, local gents that were doing time um, in, in prison uh, had spoken to a, an individual who believed that there was a number of people involved. And so it, it, it all gets very murky, doesn't it? It does. And that, that probably was uh, one of the issues with this particular investigation. I mean, it's a small town. You would know rumours start and they they snowball and and sometimes in these little towns become half fact even though they're not but as a detective you've got to you got to follow up on all of them sometimes you know of for this particular case you in relation to you know hearsay you're told something that somebody else has said and you might spend years chasing down the source of that to get to the person and for them to look blankly at you and go I don't know what you're talking about but that's part of you know being a good investigator you've got to do that but this particular case, there's all sorts of stories floating around to, you know, ridiculous ones like, you know, naked masked horsemen surrounding her to her being put in freezers to being taken by a truck driver. It's just, there's probably three dozen of those stories. The problem is for a detective, they've all got to be investigated. The thing is, I heard a detective one, one year tell me that the, the role of a detective is to prove the suspect innocent, which I thought an, an interesting take, but it's sort of true. You know, a good detective will try and prove the suspect innocent. It's very, really important for investigation that you don't have tunnel vision because that, you know, that really affects things. You've got to keep an open mind. I mean, we had psychics telling this stuff and you've just got to, you know, run run out those investigations, unfortunately. And this, this particular job had a lot of that. So time-wise, at what point did, following your investigation, and these are, these are you know, you're putting in huge hours initially and, and playing catch up, as you say, because we, we've got a case which is in essence 12 days old. It's, it's almost half a month old before you grab it. Um, what point do you get to the stage where you're thinking either I need a hand here or, or I just can't take things any further? Where do we go from here with this investigation? Well, I'll answer your, your first question. I need a hand here is what I ask constantly. You know, I had a good team of guys and girls helping me on our strike force, but it was a local strike force. And the hand would have been, for my view, um, you know, some very experienced members from the police homicide squad would have been handy. They did come up. I think they spent about 12 hours there and then moved on. So I was a bit, I wasn't, you know, look, you you take that on the chin and you move on. We did our best and whether they would have added anything, I, I don't know. Manpower would have been good because the more people you've got working on a case, the more witnesses you can get to. And, you know, in those early stages, it's all about speaking with as many people who have any knowledge about whatever it is, her movements before, during, after, and then trying to piece that together in terms of developing pro probably you know, a list of suspects. Um, although, of course, in this case, 
we did have a, a fairly strong suspect, but the evidence was lacking. Just to pick up something you just dropped in a few moments ago, you, you read back through your statement with him just recently, 20 years on. Mm. What was your motivation for that? Is that because of the 20-year anniversary? or? Yeah, yeah, partly because of that. And, I, uh, you know, as an investigator, you often reflect and, and self-analyse, and I thought, oh, I'll go and have a look back at it. Was, it was a very lengthy interview just to see how it went. I was actually quite pleased that I asked all the right questions, and it was, but he continued to deny, probably still does today, I'd say. So part of you going back is that, that sort of itch that continues to need to be scratched of going back and, you know, could I have asked something else? Was there something that I missed? Is that, that, is that part of the motivation, revisiting 20 years on? I never stopped thinking about it, Brent, ever. Not, not you know, it's less now, but it, I mean, this particular case affected me in a way psychologically that was a contributor to me leaving the police force. You know, I don't blame anyone. I'll just say that's, that's the way it is. And what, what is it about this case that, contributed to you quite some years later leaving the police what, what's the connection what's the link there what was it that just kept eating away um well probably just the fact that it remains unsolved you know when it it doesn't have to be and i think i always go back to that thing of you know regret about giving that family who i'm still in touch with a lot of them a lot of some of them like me some of them don't um giving that family some sense of justice because they still want it that community wants it. That community is Bogabilla, which is a indigenous community on the on the border there. Um, you know, it's never good for a small town to have something like that happen and it be unsolved. No unsolved murder is good, but I think in the bigger metropolitan areas they blend. You know, there's there's dozens and dozens of them. This is one for that town, so it really does affect them. And you know, I still talk to the family. As I said, even last week, and they, they're still very affected by it. And, and that emotional toll, I mean, a murder's horrendous enough, of course it is, but added to that is that, that unsolved nature of, of a case like this. There was a very moving um, interview with Teresa's son um, who said that he's never quite reconciled within himself. Um, you know, his goodness me, his mother was left in a, in a, in a, in a stormwater drain in a horrendous condition and... Um, to the point where, you know, you, you and I know, Greg, one of the toughest jobs you ever do in the police is not only informing next of kin of something like this, but then then having to arrange an ID where somebody has to come and identify, if possible, identify the deceased. Um, and as awful as it is, it's it's often a time where, where families can sort of say goodbye, even, it's an, even though it's in horrendous circumstances. And this means a lot, I think, also uh, within the Indigenous community. And he spoke about this, how he wasn't able because tragically his mum was in such a terrible state, he wasn't able to do that. She was, I think, identified through a, a very small tattoo on her wrist. And um, he spoke about his own turmoil, um, which led to him tragically ending up being incarcerated. And, and the ripple effects of these acts, and then they're unsolved, and, and they, they can't be overestimated on individuals, families, communities. It's, it's, it's like throwing that stone into a pond, isn't it, Greg? The, the ripples just go on and on and on. And you yourself speak very openly about th this being a major contributing factor to you actually walking away from the job. Yeah, not only me, Brent. I'm not the only one. I've got lots of colleagues that were involved in this case, um, specifically that are no longer in the police, and this was part of it. You know, the crime scene fellow that went out to the job is, is one example. I won't name him. But um, 
and th- and that's the other thing too. I mean, you've got this whole yes, there's a community that's grieving that a matter's unsolved, but mixed in with that, you've got emotions of um, and allegations of things like racism within the police and that as well. Now, I don't buy into that because I don't think that's true. But you know, if you look back at this case holistically. Well, you'd ask some questions, don't you? Did we serve that particular family in that community like we should have? Uh, my interest, no. You know, 850 kilometres from Sydney is a long way, Brent, and, and when someone dies, you know, I sometimes make the comparison that if, if she, she had have been a non-Indigenous lady of 43 years old who the same thing had happened to in Balmain or Newtown or anywhere in Sydney... Would there have been a different response? Now, I don't know. I'm saying yes, there would. I had very little support from a state level. I'm not talking about my own command. They were supportive. The command at the time was very good. But from a state level, this is a murder of a woman who's that's rocked a town and still does 20 years later. Um, so, yeah, my frustration was with lack of support. And when you go to the bush, Brent, you know, you expect that. Particularly as, a, you know, as an investigator, you expect you're not going to have crime scene around the corner. You know, you're not going to have a dozen more detectives to come and help you on a case. You expect that, but this particular case, I think, you know, looking at it holistically, you've got a woman who's been brutally murdered and then dragged up under a culvert and left like an animal, basically, and it was almost like nobody cares. You were quoted as saying, Greg, that the the, the status of the victim had a lot to do with the response or lack of it? Well, you know, I, I, I'll leave that for other people to decide. But my view is, you know, how can you, as I said, if you compare this to somebody who might have been in Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong, Coffs Harbour, wherever you want, would, would the response have been different? You're 18 years in the um, in the job, uh, Greg. There's no shortage of situations that you attended and things that you saw, things that you had to work through. And yet this is, would I be right in saying this is the one that for you stands out above all the others? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, just because of that toll. I mean, when you're a detective and you're investigating things, you take on the emotions of the, of the ones left over. You, know, you can be big and tough and all that sort of stuff and say, oh, no, you know, I'm a big, tough detective and that. But you wear those emotions of not only the victims, in this case, she's dead, but the victim's family. And for this matter, a very large extended family, which is a whole community. So you take all that on and, and whether you like it or not, it has an effect on you in the end. And you're the one that they're looking to. You're the gatekeeper, aren't you? You, you are the gatekeeper for that family between what has tragically happened to their their mum, their sister, their grandmother, you know, you're the gatekeeper between that incident and justice and, and the offender being brought to trial. And when you can't do that and they continue looking at you to do that, as you say, that, that, that takes a massive, massive toll. Yeah, it does. And, I mean, the other thing too is the general mistrust, you know, of Indigenous people around police. So, you know, you can look back a long way to know where that comes from. But there is a general mistrust of police and, and what they do. And there's all sorts of things being said. We should have had, you know, Aboriginal detectives working on the case and all that sort of stuff. For me, that would have made no difference at all. And I've spoken with hundreds of people, particularly with this case, that are Indigenous and I don't I don't see having, like, you know, an Aboriginal detective would have made any difference, to be honest. And, you know, when something like this happened, people and community clutch at straws a lot and want to blame someone. And 
the police get the blame a lot for what they should and shouldn't have done. And I, I get that and we accept that in the cops, that we do get the blame for things that may not have been out of our control. You could say, oh, this, you know, they should have searched more or they should have found her earlier and that sort of stuff. You're talking about the Queensland police or they should have done this or that. It's, it's so easy to say that in hindsight. But we ticked off every, you know, everything, you know. I, I remember going to remote places and searching because someone said they saw a thong. Now, what's that got to do with anything? Nothing, probably. But you don't know unless you do it. And that's what a good detective will do. They'll run everything out. And, and, you know, but the problem with this case is hundreds and hundreds of those sort of things. Someone heard someone say something or someone saw something or what about this or that person said something. That takes up an awful lot of time and in this particular matter it took us away, I, I believe, from, you know, who we should have been focusing on. So, Greg, we're going to Armidale, 1993. Now, your involvement didn't come in at this point. This is the disappearance of a young chap, William Roach, Bill Roach, he was known as, 25-year-old young bloke, attending uh, University of New England up there in Armidale part-time, disappeared, 1993, New Year's Eve, and to this day has never been found. A strike force was set up in 2004 this is another small regional town, although slightly larger because it's a town around the University of New England up there in northwest New South Wales. Quite some speculation around the disappearance or death of this young man, including involvement and, in, goodness me, local witchcraft, possible links to the local drug trade. And, uh, and as you say, you know, these, these unresolved cases start to take up a life of their own. And, uh, and as investigators, you've got to go down all these avenues to explore them and um, can you just talk us through your involvement in that task force and um, and how that unfolded? Yeah, so Bill went missing in 1993 from Aldar. Look, the investigation done at the time was average at best, I would say. There was no suspicions of you know homicide or anything like that at the time. And it wasn't till 2005 that we received a call. I was a chief of detectives at Armidale at the time, New England. Uh from someone who had some information that he'd been murdered and was on a property. Now, I've got to be a bit careful what I say here because this one still is, um, is current. I know the police in New England are still looking into it. But that was the information that we received and that initiated a, a homicide investigation that went on for some time as well. We were obviously, you know, my name was defined Bill, or his remains, I should say which we never have and they, they never have yet, but we searched everywhere, including um, a number of properties outside Armadale. So Armadale's are, are quite, you know, outside of Armadale's quite remote and it's gorge country and very difficult to search. So there was a suggestion that Bill was down a, a bottomless water hole at one stage and we had divers up and cadaver dogs and all sorts of stuff. So, look, he's never turned up in the end. Again, it's really difficult to backtrack 13, 14 years to when someone went missing to try and test the memory of those who might have seen him. And Armidale in 1993, I wasn't there, but university town, there were a lot of drugs, a lot of acid around. Um, it's, it's a real challenge for an investigator to take someone back to there and give any evidence that's sort of credible. I think, well, I'm talking about my investigation, he was, Bill was last sort of seen walking alone out 
east, east of Armagh, towards the coast. That's about as far as I got with it. And I mean, this is a case that's now 30 years. He would be 55 Yeah. now. Yeah, he would. And again, the families, um, you know, they were vocal. His mum, um, Yvonne, was very vocal uh, in missing persons overall well, since he went missing. Um, and his sister and that as well. And now his mum sadly passed away, but um, which is sad. I actually knew Yvonne, strangely enough, before I'd even joined the police. I'd, I'd, when I backtracked, um, I'd worked out that I'd met her. Um, and she was a friend of one of my aunties. So I had that sort of connection as well. So, um, you know, we did everything we could based on the information. A lot of it was old. A lot of it unreliable. It's really difficult to sort of, you know, speak to someone and say, can you tell us what happened 30 years ago? Well, there is an art to it as an investigator, um, but to, you know, forensically analyse that and try and take that where you can is a real challenge. And this was a real challenge in this job. I still don't know what happened to Bill. I can only go off the evidence I gathered. And yes, we had a suspect that was allegedly involved in his death, but that sort of went no further either. And, you know, we, we see these TV shows, don't we? You know, Greg Colcase and what have you, where detectives come in and uh, pick up a, a file and it's 10, 15, 20 years old. And within an hour, of course, of the, of the show, they're bringing all these links in together and as if by magic, uh, right, you know, we've, we've got it. I mean... It sort of harkens back too, doesn't it, um, to, as you mentioned before, investigating the tragic murder of, of Teresa Binge there. Um, you're working on behalf of those parents because this missing person, this, this unsolved, this this thing that is still open, and you, you knew his mum. And I, I, I had someone sitting in that chair not so long ago who's very involved in this, and he said he'd met someone 40 years on who had lost a, a, a daughter and would still see her in the street, see someone and, that look and follow and go, is it her? I'm pretty sure it's her. And, and, and it's all these, it's, it's all this that is carried by, by the family. And, and here's another case that you're involved in, which is unsolved. And that sort of adds to, adds to that load that you're carrying from previous cases too, I would imagine. It does. That's a really good point you make. It does add to the load and it, you know, snowballs over years and years. You know, being a young detective and, and seeing, you know, going to deaths and murders and rapes and stick-ups and all that sort of stuff, and quite exciting as a young detective, but after a long period of time, it does weigh on you a bit, particularly when you have these matters that are unsolved, whether you like it or not. I mean, you know, I've never ever been worried about any of the dead bodies I've seen. I've seen lots of them. It's more the emotion that comes along with it, the emotion of the families that are left behind that really has an impact on you. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because that, that's a less tangible aspect I think for folks on the outside looking in when they think of police and they think of stress and post-traumatic stress and of course it can be of course it can for some be related to attending all those fatals and all those cases and, and all that type of thing but there's that other silent sort of thing going on in the background isn't there where like you say it's that working on cases that are unresolved um, having family constantly say what have you got are we any closer and everything else and that's a different type of post-traumatic issue, but it's one I think is very real for you, uh, Greg. Yeah, you're dead right, Brent. That, that's exactly what it was for me. It wasn't about the, the dead bodies and children and all that sort of stuff that you see. Horrible things. Like every cop sees horrible things. Um, and some are really affected by that. But it's that cumulative effect of that emotion, you know, and particularly not being able to get justice is a big one. And, you, you know, in the cops, and particularly as a detective, you win some, you lose some. 
I've been to trial lots of times with victims of horrendous things and have the, you know, the alleged perpetrator walk out laughing, soul-destroying when that happens because you put so much into it and sometimes a strong case and a jury, for whatever reason, finds a person not guilty and off they walk to possibly do it again. But um, that does have a psychological impact on you. But the other thing is, back when I joined the police, there was very little in terms of support. I'll say very little, none. Okay. It's okay to give someone a card and say, ring the employee assistance branch, but nobody's ever done that. Um, you know, we dealt with things back then by drinking. I've got to be honest, it was, um, that's the way police dealt with it in the pub. So we drank to celebrate things. We also drank to commiserate things and, and, you know, I guess push aside bad memories. I'd like to hope that's changed a little bit now in the police force, that they're taking better care of people and intervening earlier before they spiral out of control. Greg, you talked about, I, I, I was in the job in the, in the 80s, started in the mid-80s. The drinking culture was huge and it was, there was no malice behind it. It was, in, in fact, you know, it was almost the worse the jobs that you attended as a unit, the more you drunk. And, and, and there would be situations where your sergeant um, would, would, would organise that at the end of a shift as a way of, of, of breaking it down. So it was like, okay, you know, we've had a, a terrible case that we've worked on. It could have been multi, you know, m- multiple deaths and a fatal or whatever the case may be. And you just sort of knew that, okay, when we knock off, we'll be going up to the police bar and there'll be a whole lot of alcohol put on board. And, um, and you've spoken also, Greg, of, of, of wearing that mask. And I think a lot that are in the job can relate to that. It's that, you know, you, you joined the job as did I at a time where you didn't show, you didn't show emotion, you didn't show weakness. If you did, you know, you attend a fatal or something, you'd, you'd sneak out right behind a tree and you'd throw up and stuff like that. And you'd, and you'd hope that no one saw it and you'd go back in and try and be all stoic. And then you'd hit the drink. Um, Sunday schools, goodness, Sunday schools. I think you mentioned this in, in, in somewhere I read. Uh, Sunday schools, for, for, for my memory, was at the end of a, uh, back in the day, we used to do seven nights of night shift. And, um, and on the final night, you'd go to Sunday school, which means you'd finish at seven in the morning on a Sunday. And you'd go upstairs and, and literally drink till middle of the day, passed out. And, and I mean, everyone looking, but you've all, you know, we're all responsible of taking those decisions ourselves. We're adults and everything else. But that was the culture. And, and, and Greg, that would have been a culture that, that, you, that you were in during that time. And can I say also, particularly in those regional remote areas, your access to support from head office, I forget about it. No, well, well, support generally, I think back then, it was just, it was non-existent. So your support were your colleagues. And, you know, we talk about the police being an insular, you know, and cops only mixing with cops and stuff like that. And there's a reason for that because they understand. And, you know, we, we, thankfully, when I joined, we had, I think it was post-Royal Commission or it was on, we had dry stations, which was um, sort of good, but there were plenty of licensed premises around. And as I said, you know, you'd had a big job where you had a win, you know, locked up the bad guy, you'd go and drink and celebrate. And conversely... You know, terrible things, you know, it could be anything from a Sid's death to a murder to, you know, bad car accident or, or whatever, fatal. You know, you'd go to the pub and you'd talk through it with your mates and, of course, drinking at the time. And Look, that's all great quick fix. Of course, not sustainable. And it's done with good intent too, isn't it? It wasn't malicious. It wasn't holding people down and forcing alcohol down their throat. It was like, this is how we do it. This is, and as a young copper coming through, that's what you learn the problem is, of course, you start to associate alcohol with a means by which you deal with all these issues. Um, 
and goodness, no shortage of uh, past and, and present police with <laughs> alcohol issues as, as a result of the, the nature of the work and, and that sort of med- medicating through, 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 through alcohol. Greg, um, and, and if you're not comfortable with me saying it, that, that we can edit this out, but you, you were medically discharged in, in 2012. You've mentioned that a major con- one of the major contributing factors harkens back to the, um, the 2003 investigation, Teresa Binge, but here we are nine years beyond that. Do you mind if I ask, um, what was it that finally made you say, you know what, I, can't, I just cannot do this anymore? You've spoken about post-traumatic stress. You've spoken about wearing that mask, the drinking, and all these sorts of things all come together. Would it be all right to ask you, you know, what culminated in you saying, I, I just can't do this anymore? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not one thing. You know, it built up over a long period of time and I, to the point where I'd, I'd had friends of mine saying, listen, you're really not travelling well. Because I was travelling how you travel, just surviving. A lot of drinking, okay, a lot. Um, and just getting flogged in the country, obviously. Um, I ended up as a duty officer and I was, you were on call basically most of the time. So you get called out in the middle of the night to various things, which is you know, part of the job, but you're sort of so exhausted that other people can see that you're really not coping and then your behaviour starts to change. So at that time I had little kids and my behaviour towards them wasn't healthy, if you know what I mean. And this is this is a common story with lots of cops with little kids as well. So when your behaviour changes and it's affecting your own psychological health and your your own family, then you have to you have to take a backward step and say, all right, is, is this working? Can I fix this? Um, the answer for me was no, and I, I did spiral quite badly. And, you know, in fact, when I left the police, I did virtually nothing for two or three years. I wasn't motivated to do anything. I was, ex- and this would be something a lot of ex-cops can resonate with, extremely angry, extremely angry. So my PTSD manifested itself with anger, and I took that out on the ones closest to me because they're the easiest. Um, but I, I couldn't walk down a street uh, without getting very, very angry. And I mean to the point of, you know, um, having an anxiety attack brought on by anger. You know, I'd see some person in the street that reminded me of somebody that I'd locked up or or something or some other job and you get triggered all the time. And that anger, you know, w- was really difficult to control. I'm glad to say it's sort of under control now. Were there times back then going through that that you crossed that line, mate? Did you lash out? Um, well, no, I never got into any trouble, but I'd, I'd lash out at myself more than anything. There was a lot of holes in walls and headbutts of things. I never, no, no, I never, I never was violent towards anyone else, but me. But I, I felt like it. And that was a two-year process, and, and you came out the other side, and, and, and you got some help, I guess. Yeah, yeah, years and years of, of help. Now the the exiting process was not pleasant either, so it made actually made it worse. When you say the exiting process, sorry, what, what exiting from the police? Yeah, yeah, from made the made the reasons that you left made the impact even worse. Ten times worse. Can you explain that? Um, so when I left, you know, we were tied up with insurance companies and stuff like that. The the police the police are. Exit probably wasn't too bad, but the whole insurance part of it, because my life was affected. You know, I was I had no money. Um, I had to survive, 
So there's an insurance process now. I had people following me. I had surveillance operators following me, watching my kids, watching me down at the beach with my kids in the supermarket. It was humiliating. These are often ex-police working for insurance companies, private investigators, and they're watching you to align what you're saying, how you're being affected, just to make sure that, well, this is the case. And, oh, well, he seems quite happy here because he's down the beach with his kids. He doesn't look like he's got... This is the sort of the game that's played to hold those payouts off. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, their business model is to drag things out as long as they can. Hopefully, you'll just give up or... Unfortunately, you'll go and seek another way out, which I didn't, but um, might have felt like it a few times. But yeah, it was humiliating. And just, you know, I left the police force as a detective inspector. I was quite proud of what I'd done. Um, And to have someone follow you around and follow your kids without you knowing, and then chuck a report in front of you and say, look what we've found, which by the way, was nothing. It was me in the supermarket, I think. I went to the beach one day with my kids. It wasn't me out partying, that's for sure, I can tell you. It was humiliating for me, and it made things a, a lot worse. You've um, you've moved on. You're you're I think uh, running your own business now, um, training investigators. So you're you're taking all those wonderful skills that you know, detective inspector. That is no that is no small rank in the New South Wales Police. That's that is up there, and all that skill, that eighteen years of experience. Now you're putting back into um, assisting investigators in that private corporate government environment. So I think you're also um, assisting with investigations in workplaces, corporations with allegations of harassment, bullying. So so you've sort of, you, you've, you've come back into an investigative role, which, and I can hear from, from, from the way you talk about that, there's a real passion in that for you, but you've been able to step away and you're now doing it on your own terms. Mm, oh, I love it. I love being able to pass on, the skills I have to others, whether, and that's whether you want to be a private investigator, you know, and there's, there's lots of jobs for that, but in government as an investigator, we're looking at sexual harassment or bullying and misconduct, those sort of things. I get a big kick. Well, you know, I did in the police as well. I was always a trainer. I, I recall even I was detective inspector. I was still running investigative courses because, because I loved it. You know, I loved being able to improve people's skills and it, it's my trade, I suppose investigation it's what I know best it's, it's probably the only thing I know really but uh, I love teaching people how to investigate and you know what I say to lots of my students is that it being a homicide investigation or investigator is the same as being a workplace investigator or a private investigator the, the fundamentals of investigation are actually the same I get a big kick out of going over I talk a lot of cases and stuff too you know um, and people are really interested I mean True crime. This is part of it. Podcasts and TV shows. I've Here just we are. <laughs> loaded. You yes. know. Yeah. And people have a real interest in what police and what detectives do. Nothing magic about it, by the way. So after a almost, as you said, self-imposed two-year sort of hiatus, and I think also after eighteen years, you step away. You lose perhaps your identity of of who you are. You're no longer detective inspector. You're unemployed, <laughs> Greg Lamy, and struggling and not quite knowing what tomorrow brings. And, uh, that's a, it's a big, big price to pay, but I'm just, uh, but you've, you've, you've climbed out of that hole and, uh, and you've got that identity back. You got that sort of glint back in your eye. You're back doing what you love doing, that training and working with people. And in that regard, um, 
Greg, I'm, I'm just I'm just so pleased to hear that uh, you've been able to uh, get yourself back on track. Um, yeah, thank. It's always there though. It, PTSD never goes away. Okay, so I still get triggered. I still get upset. I can still find myself crying sometimes on seeing something or remembering something. But um, I'm dealing with it better now. Um, you know, you've given a lot. I've been given a lot of tools over the years and how to deal with that sort of stuff. I mean, the alcohol's still there. Okay, it's still a way of dealing with stuff, but um, you learn to cope better. But it, it's not something that goes away. You're not like fixed. You know, I still get things that trigger me, and you know, even as I said, the 20 year anniversary of Teresa's murder was tough for me because I actually hooked up with the entire family on um, Zoom because I wanted to talk to them and I wanted to tell them about something else and some other ideas I had. So, um, you know, it's always there. That's the point. Greg, what, what would you say to that young, Greg Lamey, that young detective coming through, if you could go back 10 years, 12 years ago and given some advice that perhaps may have prevented um, some of that those awful experiences that you had leaving the job and everything else, what, what would your advice be to, to your younger self? Gee, that's a good question. I think you know, when you join the cops, and I know this happens a lot time, lot now, is that, you know, have some, the cops are just a job. It's, it's probably different when you, you know, move into investigation and playing clothes as a detective, you, you live it a bit more. I lived it too much, and particularly going out to smaller towns, you know, you were the, you had to know what was going on, you know, you knew who all the crooks were, you know, you had informants telling you stuff. It was just constant, it was 24 hours, so you never turned it off. You must turn it off, because if you don't, that's when it will eventually affect you, although you don't think like that at the time. So PTs, as you know, with returned soldiers, because they're so heightened all the time overseas because they can, you know, step on landmines or get shot or, or whatever, they come back to normal, what we call civilian life, they can't turn that off, and that's the difficult thing. Now, they haven't got a choice, but if you're a young cop, what I'd say is that have lots of outside interests, go to work and do your job and do it well, then go home, have other groups of friends. You know, when I joined, all my friends were police because they, what I thought they were the only ones who knew what we were going through and mix in alcohol and everything with that. You've really got a good short-term fix, but not a long-term solution. Well, Greg, um, I just want to say, I just want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. Um, there'll be a lot of folks who listen to this that will get some real help, support, some insight because of your wisdom and, and your honesty. Um, the humanity that, that you brought to your policing, to your investigations, um, and, and it really stood out for me, you know, even prior to meeting you, but more so now that I have met you, you know, the, the Teresa Binge case, the fact that you still, as recently as last week, had support with that family, you still, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, reread the interview that you did with that chief suspect to go back through asking yourself, what did I miss? Could I have done it differently? And, and you know, that in, that intense humanity that you carried into those investigations, uh, I know in that particular case and some others, you weren't able to close it off and, and tie the bow around the box, but, um, Greg, it wasn't for the want of trying, and I just want to thank you so much for your honesty here today. Thank you so much for your service and... and you know, you, you paid a real price. You paid a real price, but you've been strong enough to come through the other side. And um, and uh, but, but thanks so much for having a chat to us. I've, I've really enjoyed our time here together. All right, you're most welcome, Brent. 
Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.